here but there, there ain't no job. It's live, live, it's all the way live. Don't even have to walk, don't even have to drive. Just slide, slide, slip it, slide. Just forget about your troubles and your nine to five. And just sail on, that's what you do. Just sail on. Now the dude's so fucking hey, what do you think? What is it called? It's called a lakeside stand. iconic 1980 lakeside hit, Fantastic Voyage, invites listeners to leave behind the mundane and embark on a journey filled with unexpected delights. Breaking free of societal constraints in your own comfort zone has compelling rewards, but only if you're ready to embrace the journey. Societal constraints extend to the business world, too. Quarterly earnings calls often compel business leaders to follow a path to short-term gains rather than focusing on customer centricity and the long-term gains of that path. Elenia Vitali's fantastic voyage began on the Italian island of Sardinia and took her to Spain, the United Kingdom, Southeast Asia, and back to Italy. Along that voyage, she learned a lot about customer experience. Recently, she focused her efforts to write Journey to Centricity, a guide for companies willing to embark on a fantastic voyage that focuses on the most important stakeholder in any business, the customer. This week on NextNQ, we discuss Elenia's childhood experience growing up in Sardinia, her first experience in customer relationships, why companies still struggle to understand both customers and employees, the relationship between customer centricity and profitability, the power of emotional connection with customers, why there is a trust deficit between customers and companies, the barriers to customer centricity, and a Sardinia-only food you have to hear about. Let's get to it. Welcome to Next in Q, the podcast for contact center and customer experience professionals. Next in Q is brought to you by Happy Two Vision. Eliminate blind spots and see right through every conversation with Happy Two Vision. Learn more at ajppitu.com. Now, here's your host, Rob Dwyer. Thank you, Elenia Vidili, for being Next in Q. How are you today? I am Great, Rob. Thank you so much for having me today. Uh, so before we really jump into things, uh, this episode is coming out on uh, Thanksgiving here in the U.S. So to all my U.S. listeners, I hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And Elenia, I have to thank you for taking the time to be here with me today so that we can talk about all things uh, customer centricity. But before we get to that, I'd like you to tell me a little bit about um, growing up in, in Sardinia and how you ended up uh, where you are today. Yeah, good question. Something that I'm actually never asked. Um... So I was born here in Sardinia and I grew up here until I was 19 years old. Um, I think I was quite fortunate to live here actually, to you know, um, have experienced uh, life in an island, in a small island. And um, I am a countryside girl, so I basically lived in the countryside until then, until when I left. And, um, and I loved it. 
it was beautiful. I, I have such a great childhood memories with, um, you know, here in the countryside and with animals and just uh, being in true contact with nature. Um, it's so different from other children, like say my cousins who used to live in the big cities and I could um, see the difference even when I was a child, I couldn't really understand why they were living in such a ugly places, you know, in the city. Um, so I'd say I'm, I feel quite fortunate to, and, and grateful to have lived in the countryside when I was a child. Then I left in, when I was 19, soon after I finished my high school um, studies, I left to Spain. I was a bit of a rebel when I was um, <laughs> a young woman. So <laughs> I decided to, um, yeah, to travel. So I started traveling in Europe first and I left for Spain. Um, just doing, uh, you know, I always, I've always been in love with languages and traveling and different cultures and meeting new people. And I just felt, since I was a teenager, I felt that Sardinia is a small island compared to other countries, obviously. I felt it was too small for me. Um, but not small in terms of like geographies, but small in terms of isolated from the rest of the world, but also in terms of culture and mentalities. Um, and I just needed to get away. You know, it felt just too, too narrow, you know. So that's what I did. I left for Spain um, and then I stayed there for like a year and a half, two years. And I was managing a restaurant for, yeah, for about two years. And I loved it there. Um, I learned a language and it was amazing. It was a really, really beautiful experience, you know, those experiences that you do when you're just free, free from worries, just 19, just discovering the world that you just do anything because anything else outside of the island to me was new. Um, and then um, as a countryside girl, obviously, big travels and big cities would scare me, but I wasn't scared at all. I was just really, really excited. Then after Spain, I left. Um, I wanted to study in the UK. Um, I don't know why, but I had this, I was drawn by England and studying in, um, in the UK. I'd never been there, but I always said, since I was a child, I always said to my mom, mom, I really want to live in the UK. I really want to go there. And my mom used to say, but you've never been there. How, like, why? Why do you want to live in England? <laughs> you know, those things that feels like <laughs> you've really been there. But no, I was never, I had never been there. So, and then one day I decided, that's it, I'm just going to do it. I was 20 something years old, 21, I think, 21 years old. And then uh, I did a one-way ticket. Uh, Braxack, and then I left to Cambridge. <laughs> so, <laughs> left to Cambridge, and it was, I, I stayed there for nine years, believe it or not. I, I was only going there for like a year as a, you know, just improve my English and just study English. Um, and then I stayed there nine years. Um, so, I joined the university, uh, international business. Then I graduated, then I started working for big companies like NEC, Bayer, uh, and others. And I always worked in corporate marketing, um, and that's where my experience in CX started, exactly in NEC, in my first job. And then in 2017, I quit my job, uh, my corporate job, and um, I went traveling again for two years. Uh, actually, it was my sabbatical year, my first year uh, off. I traveled in Southeast Asia. And, uh, and then the second year, I started, I started my business. So literally, my business started in Singapore, oddly enough. <laughs> 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 and then I decided to come back to Europe because I thought maybe Asia is too far away from families. So uh, let's grow up a bit. <laughs> so 
came back home. <laughs> it's uh, very, it connects with me to hear you say that Sardinia didn't feel big enough for you. You know, I, I too grew up in a small town, certainly not, not an island like Sardinia, but a, a very small community. And I felt the same way when I was in high school. I couldn't wait to get out. And I, I moved away as quickly as I could. Wanted to live in the big city and, and really spent uh, many years in much larger cities. And only recently have I, have I actually come back. I, I came back home. My wife and I both grew up in this small town. And, and so we kind of came back home. I, I don't know if it's a certain point of your life where you're ready for that um, little bit of peace that's away from the big city or what, what the deal is, yes. but it definitely resonates with me a lot. I wonder that yes. growing up in a, a, what I would say is a, a little bit smaller community, right? Different pace of life and, Probably, I don't know, did did everyone kind of know everyone where you grew up? Absolutely, yes. Yes. Yeah. Did that... It's a small town of a thousand people, so you can... You can yeah. <laughs> did that inform your view of customer centricity? Because I know that when you are smaller towns, smaller businesses... You know your customers. I mean, literally know them, know their families, those businesses, some of which have been in business for generations and, and they know everyone. Did that help inform your view of what customer centricity should, should look like? Yes. And um, I wrote about it in my book. So my very first experience in customer relationships was when uh, my auntie um, was a shopkeeper of a newsstand. And uh, in summer times when I was a child, I used to um, help her out. And I was, very, I was a very curious child and I loved um, serving people, like talking to people and just being around and chatting, basically. So my auntie was the person who um, taught me the very basic of customer relationships and serving customers. So she, she knew everybody in the town. So as a newsstand, as you, as you might imagine, um, people going to church in the mornings or, or people taking the children in, uh, at school, for example, or just people crossing by, coming back from work, they would stop and get the latest uh, magazine, for example, you know, or the newspaper and, uh, and et cetera, and things like that. Or would even just stop to say hi to my auntie and uh, have a little bit of chat. So it was fascinating to me just seeing my auntie being so passionate about serving customers. She used to know everything about her customers. Because obviously, I mean, as a small community, you would know um, the kind of magazine that they buy, um, you know, how much they can spend. And uh, the, you, you basically know everything about them. And that's basically um, what my auntie used to do. We, she didn't have, at that time, mind you, I was seven years old, eight, you know, I was quite a child. So it was a long time ago. We're talking about more than 30 years ago now. So she didn't really have any technology. She just had a little notebook and she used to just put things down about her customers. So say customer A, I don't know, Marie, for example, <laughs> she used to write things down about them. And she used to remind herself about, you know, about the customers with this notebook. And it was so fascinating. And then she used to prepare teas and coffees in the morning and biscuits so that, um, um, she could say elevate the conversations with uh, um, having a little bit of a chat with coffees and teas and then um, if for example because our town is in um, um, in between the countryside and going towards the the seaside basically so a lot of tourists will pass by and will stop to get a magazine or newspaper 
um, she would always be very kind and, you know, very knowledgeable about um, giving them information about where to go, for example, and just do the extra mile instead of just selling just a product, in this case, a newspaper. She wouldn't spend much time with these kind of customers, but she was always very helpful and uh, very kind in serving them. So that's where I learned the very basics of customer experience and, cus and customer relationships. And my auntie used to always say to me, if you want to do this job, you need to know your customers inside out. You need to know everything about them. And, and that stuck with me. And um, yeah, that's basically where it started. A lot before than my experiences in NEC. <laughs> I love that uh, she had the notebook CRM going uh, way back <laughs> yes. then. It is technology. Even a notebook, a, a piece of paper and a pencil can be uh, effective depending on the scale of your customer base. And it sounded like she absolutely uh, employed that the right way so that she could remember really specific things about her customers. Yeah. I'm wondering with your experiences with really large brands now and having worked with brands at scale <clears throat> and knowing that we have technology to get voice of customer data and voice of employee data, why do we still see that companies are not aligned with what customers and employees truly want, particularly with, with larger companies. Why is that? Mm, good question. So there is this overload of customer data that companies are so obsessed about. Um, these days we have all the technology available, as you say, they collect a vast amount of data, but they struggle to analyze, interpret effectively the data and act upon data. So most of the times what I see in companies is this first failure. So, um, not collecting the right data that we need. So collecting a lot of data, but not using it correctly and not acting, you know? And a lot of the time we have that data in silos. So we don't, act, act, we don't actually um, share it with um, the rest of the organization so that every department can, um, can use it effectively to en enhance and improve their customer experience. That's one of the problems. Another problem is that we shouldn't concentrate too much on the data um, because there is way too much data. So understanding the data, okay, that's fine, but there isn't much understanding of the people, you know, so <laughs> the consumer behavior. So there is a lot of data around, but we don't have, we have a lot of data scientists, for example, but we don't have many people who understand people inside organizations. That's another problem that I see. So another problem that we have is, it's not the data itself, it's the culture, the customer culture that's missing. And the culture should be the base of um, the actions that we take, right? So data collection, for example act up on data, customer data. Okay, before that, do we actually have the customer-centric culture in place? And that's another problem that I see. So the culture is the first thing that needs to be set before anything else. And then the last thing I see is um, an extreme focus on short-term rather than long-term gains. And as we know, customer centricity is more long-term rather than short-term. So there is a prioritization of short-term rather than long-term. So these are the four kind of issues that I see that create this misalignment, you know. Yeah. One of the things that I think you hit on 
probably more than most people who talk about customer centricity is that short-term versus long-term and the conflict that comes with public companies who are beholden to shareholders and shareholders are looking for returns and far too often companies act in the the interest of those short-term gains so that at my my quarterly review I can talk about how we you know performed year over year quarter over quarter but that sometimes comes at the expense of that longer term profitability that longer term sustainability can you talk more about how companies can both be profitable and be customer centric in the long run absolutely well first of all customer centricity is not the opposite of profitability um and so many companies tend to believe that we can be customer centric and we can be profitable it's very um functional <laughs> and it happens quite um well so we need to be able to companies need to be able to align business financial objectives with customer centric objective and we need to have this balance because of course long term that on standalone like this doesn't work without short term so we need to have both not one or the other it needs to work in conjunction long term strategy customer centricity is more about loyalty and retention while for example other activities like marketing and growth are more about um short term uh, new acquisition of customers and growth of the company right and we all know that companies mostly grow with acquisition of new customers and we need to have a strategy that aligns both it's not one or the other that's the thing i have um for my book for example i've interviewed ili cafe the ceo of ili cafe massimiliano pogliani and um they are the most ethical company um in the world by um the it's a it's a big corp, corp uh, corporation and um they've been listed as one of the most ethical companies in the world and um they are absolutely super profitable in fact they are one of the most successful organizations in the world that sells coffees and um so how can we be profitable and ethical we are ethical if all our behaviors as a company align with our actions you know we cannot be ethical for example if we say our products are organic but then our growers are picking raw materials in really bad conditions so there there is a misalignment for example so what they do um they created um they actually aligned with a creation of shared value strategy um which means that um um they don't create value only for the shareholders but for all stakeholders starting from every practice and every behavior they do from the growers to the employees inside the organization to the um to the customers and then um the um all, all the um internal facilities are all um sustainable um in order to um consume less for example and um um less CO2 emissions so they are trying to be carbon neutral um by 2030 and they are succeeding um in everything they do so the philosophy is the more we take care of our growers our employees and our customers the more they will take care of us that's the the philosophy that uh, the more we create value for them the more they will create value for us 
So in terms of the growers, for example, what they do, um, they provide, obviously, as a coffee uh, company, they have uh, coffee growers everywhere in the world, and especially, as it happens, in the developing countries. And that means that, for example, for a particular family of growers, they'll take care of them financially, so they pay them well, they have a good contract so that they can um, they can have mortgages, you know, they can pay for the children's education, they can, um, and et cetera, et cetera. And we're not talking about extreme um, abnormal things, you know. These are just normal things, but that, that, that don't happen in uh, many other companies. So they take care of the growers, and the growers stay with the company for the long term. And that means that it's obviously is a um, virtuous circle. They've created this virtuous circle that adds value to all stakeholders. Um, by staying with a company for the long term, of course, they will um, take care of the company. So they pick up the best coffee. They will do everything they can for the company. And um, they, uh, the company pays the education to the growers as well. Um, then in terms of the product, the product has is organic so everything that um, is um, at the cultivation of the product the growing process everything is made organic because they believe that um, customers are looking at sustainability values as well as the taste of the product and they believe that if the customer is uh, the customer values are aligned with the business values then obviously they will pay more, they will say more loyal, and they prefer to buy from Millil rather than any other brand. So their philosophy is to create more value for all stakeholders, and not just in the short term, but short term and long term. It's a long term strategy. It doesn't happen overnight. And Illy Cafe has been doing um, the creating shared value strategy um, for years, for decades, obviously. I wonder how important telling that story is in addition to the actual behavior of being customer centric and and doing things the right way because consumers if they don't necessarily know the story may become focused on price. I mean we have all I think looked for something that is a little bit less expensive or trying to find that deal. Mm -hmm. So how important is telling your story as a brand when you're doing that to maintaining that kind of success? It's obviously very important telling the story. So let me go back a bit. Human beings as customers, let's say like that, um, as customers, we look, of course, at um, product features and prices and um, everything that fulfills our really basic needs. So companies believe that customers only look at these convenient sides of a product, so product features, quality, prices, and etc. when they're making decisions. But human beings are influenced by much more than rational factors like price, quality, etc. So price only fulfills our basic needs, right? Um, so that's the rational part of our brain. So the left part of our brains understand processes, logic, numbers, and sciences very easily, and that's what we look for. But unfortunately, it's not just that. The instinctive part of our brain, so the right part of our brain, makes instant decisions which are based on our emotions, our feelings, our dreams, intuitions, values, beliefs, etc. And both parts of our brain are extremely important. That's how we make decisions. Rational and instinct. Um, instinctive. Is that how you say in English? I hope so. <laughs> Let's say emotional part of our brain. <laughs> so, the, so the left part of, our, of the brain wants things to be easy to understand, convenient, which is what most companies tend to focus on. But unfortunately, they underestimate how to connect to the right part of our brain, so to the emotional side of the, of the brain. And when customers feel the emotional connection with a brand, they become not just satisfied, 
which is exactly where companies stop with their product features, prices, etc. But they are emotionally engaged. And emotionally engaged customers forge a, for they, they create a long-lasting bond with the brand. This is the difference. And of course, when we have um, a brand that connects with us on, val on our values and beliefs, we feel like, okay, this brand really gets me. It's not just a price. Yes, the price fulfills my first need and then the, and then the quality and then the features of the product and etc. But then why do I choose it? Because it goes beyond and it really gets my internal values and beliefs. That's, that's the difference. Of course, it's important to, to share it and it's important to communicate it. Unfortunately, what we have these days, we have what we call greenwashing. And, and that's when companies, um, they say they, um, they behave in an ethical way, but they don't actually follow through. It doesn't actually happen. You know? Or they use tactics to fool the customer. That's not obviously a customer-centric business as we know it. Um, and uh, I was reading a study the other day um, which said that 76% of customers would refuse to purchase a product that they found that, that it comes from a company that does not support their values and beliefs, for example. If I believe that, okay, that coffee is great, but the people picking the raw ingredients are um, treated in, in really bad conditions, I'm definitely not buying it, you know? Um, and that happens, especially for newer generations of consumers. Um, and I'm saying millennials and Generation Z, but we shouldn't just stop on generational um, cohorts because new generation of consumers are spreading the behavior, the consumer behavior to other generations as well. So these days we're not just talking about generation, we're talking about all consumers. Of course, there are consumers who don't care, who don't have those values and those, those beliefs, but the majority of consumers want to see change in the way that businesses do business. You are speaking my language. You know, I just had David Allison on the show, whose company Value Graphics provides data on values across the globe and what people value the most. And, you know, what we talked about was how people make, among other things, buying decisions based on how well a brand aligns with their values. And it's not about demographics. It's about how well companies align with our values. And so when you're saying 76% of people are going to make, I, I, I would say the true answer is it's even higher than that. It's a question of what do people actually value? And so, uh, and, and how well we're telling the story as a brand about what we value and how we present ourselves to the market so that people can understand whether or not they align with us. Certainly, if uh, I value destroying the planet, I'm probably not going to put that in my marketing materials because then people won't buy from me. But I'm wondering, you mentioned greenwashing. And this brings up the brings up trust to me. So how do I as a company ensure that that I'm viewed as trustworthy? Mm, good question. Yes. And I like the way you phrased it. How can a company be seen as trustworthy? Yes. Because there is a lot of talks of how can we build trust? And I actually believe that building trust is basically implying that you are in control as a company, but you're not that in control. You need to demonstrate a lot of actions before you build the trust. The trust is not just built in two days, you know. 
Um, the short answer is trust. You are tr a trustworthy company when you keep your promises over your consistency and over the long term. It's an ongoing process that requires a lot of consistent effort, action, and dedication. Um, I wrote about in the book, um, chapter six, I dedicated a whole chapter on trust because I believe trust is a, you know, there is a big deficit of trust between consumers, employees, and the wider society. Um, uh, yeah, because, and this is because of the misconduct, corporate misconduct over many, many years. And again, the short-term uh, extra focus, narrow focus, the maximization of product of um, sorry profit at the expense of everything and everybody, um, and um, uh, and again, uh, consumers and employees and people in general require businesses to do more than just selling products and just exploit um, resources. So. So that's the deficit of trust that we are experiencing right now. How do we create this trustworthy brand? It, it happens in four ways, based on my research and on the research of um, many other colleagues. It happens in four ways. So two soft traits are integrity and empathy. Integrity, as we know, it refers to the ability to act under moral values and behave under moral values. And, and that goes, you know, it includes the, our brand purpose as well, which many companies don't have, don't even, they can't really articulate what is their brand purpose. Um, it means being credible through honesty, transparency, and it means conduct business in an ethical and responsible way. So that's our integrity. But we need to show it consistently through our actions every day. Then we have, as we said, empathy, and it, which involves walking in someone's shoes, understanding their emotions, and having that genuine commitment to improving the customer experience. And going back to our voice of the customer, voice of the employees, Collecting data, yes, that's amazing, but do we have that genuine commitment to improve the customer experience? Question mark. And then we have last two traits, which are um, heart traits, reliability and um, competence. Reliability, obviously, is um, the consistent uh, behavior of delivering the promises made, whether it's product quality or customer experience, customer support, customer service, and the responsiveness of the brand to show up on time and communicate with customers. And that means if I say in my marketing communication, if I say that I will reply to you in 24 hours as a customer, I expect a response in 24 hours. And if you don't reply in 24 hours, then hmm, I'm not sure if I believe you next time, right? So that's it's <laughs> something that obviously um, contributes to becoming a trustworthy company. So that includes, um, reliability includes responding promptly, for example, to inquiries or to addressing customer issues in a timely way. Um, these little things that don't seem to be so important, but put together everything, all our actions, they obviously create a trustworthy company. Then lastly, we have competence and involves the skills, the knowledge, and the continuous improvement of a brand to provide those solutions, even products that align to customer needs and goals. So, for example, we have so much customer data. We were talking about customer data earlier. We have so much customer data these days. Do we have, though, the a robust customer, uh, sorry, cybersecurity um, strategy and measures in place? And do we clearly communicate the commitment that we have to protect our customer information? That creates trust with customers, you know. Um, so all these things create a trustworthy company. And um, trust is so important these days because we don't just differentiate through our products and services. 
but we are also differentiating through our customer experiences, which obviously are important. But then trust is a soft skill that many companies undervalue, don't take into consideration, as well as empathy. Empathy is, is another one because they see it as soft skill. They see it as an intangible thing that doesn't add any value, any profit, see? Because they don't see the return of investment. That's the problem. But when customers really trust a brand, they, be, they, they believe that the brand acts in their best interest. That's what we want. That's the bond that we want. You know, I want to go to that company. I want to buy from that company, even though I spend a few dollars more, but because that company gets me. I trust it and I believe that it acts in my best interest and provide what I expect. Are we asking the wrong questions or using the wrong measures to understand how customers perceive us? I don't think it's about metrics. I think it's about perspective. I think, I think companies, they just focus focus too much on their own perspective, their own internal objectives, their own internal operations and um, cutting cost and uh, return of investment and maximizing profit. Those objectives that are not quite aligned to the external perspective of customers. See, there is a clash all the time between companies and customers. Customers expect and want a way of being served or treated and companies don't understand how and why and um, which ways to do it. So, so it's a different perspective, you see. The complexity of an organization also plays a huge role here because Every little department, as we, as you know, we are siloed as organizations, and every department has their own objective, their own perspective, their own role. And that is another problem. So there are lots, lots of problems why a company struggles to become um, customer-centric, you know. But I think the main problem is the narrative is upside down, Companies are born product-centric and they continue to be product-centric in the long in the long term. And um, and even though they want to change, they struggle because obviously there is this string of pulling, oh, I've got to make lots of money, but then customers want this, and then there is this pulling, you know, and <laughs> it's really difficult to make it happen. So I want to change gears a little bit here. Sure. And uh, this is probably going to feel like a question from left field. And you may have to help me with uh, pronunciation. But can you tell me your thoughts on uh, Kasu Marzu cheese? Did I say that correctly? I'm going, are we talking about cheese now? Yeah. Yeah. But this is not a cheese that you can find just anywhere. Right. This is uh, this is a special special cheese. Yes, yes. Um, it's a special cheese that you. I believe you can find it only in Sardinia. I believe. Um, I might, might be wrong, but I've only seen it here, and um, <laughs> not sure I can explain it properly in English. Basically, I remember my dad used to put it on the table. Oh, let me explain what it is first. So, you know, it just um, contextualize a bit better. <laughs> so, it's pecorino cheese that um, it, it's basically left inside a bag for months and it creates uh, mosquitoes inside. Mosquitoes, so the bacterias um, create mosquitoes and mosquitoes then... I don't know which way it is actually. So basically, the, it creates bacteria inside the cheese, and they, um, and then it creates the bacteria creates worms, 
And then the worms create cream because they start moving around. Obviously, it's not two worms, but it's many of them, like hundreds and hundreds of worms inside this cheese, um, this like round cheese closed up in a in a bag. God. <laughs> and um, so it creates this. I've never tasted it because, um, yeah, it's not the best kind of. Uh, cheese to taste but apparently is um, it's a little spicy and creamy so the worms create a cream a really nice nice bread that people put on on uh, on food like uh, bread and um, everything else so yeah back to my dad when I was a child my dad was very strict when I was a child so um you know those those kind of um, yeah, the, the, those those kind of cultures in which you cannot get up unless you finished your food. That yeah, that sort of mentality. Um, so my dad was was quite strict, and I remember that after our meal, he used to um, unveil this <laughs> bag of uh, uh, of cheese and put this bag on the table, open it up, and obviously there was this pecorino cheese inside, open up on top, uncovered, and inside the pecorino there was a huge, I don't know, mass of worms and cream and, I don't know, like a whole population of... <laughs> of of worms anyway I'm not sure I'm explaining it but this is how it was and I've always refused to eat it <laughs> I, I remember okay. I remember crying when I was a child refusing to eat it I can imagine I can absolutely imagine that it seems like <laughs> something that is uh, very culturally distinct and uh, certainly something that, look, if it's still around, there are people who must swear by it and keep making this cheese. Around, yes. So there must be something there. I am not going to try it. I'm not that adventurous. It's just not going to happen. You might like it. <laughs> I mean, you might like it too. And you had it right there on the dinner table and you refused. So I don't know. I don't know how I can be expected to try. <laughs> I've never tried it, and I'm uh, I'm perfectly happy. <laughs> <laughs> now that I've uh, brought back uh, potentially uh, scarring memories from your childhood, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts that you wanted to share with the audience that were related to, to customers and companies and, and not Pecorino cheese with, with worms in it? <laughs> I think the takeaway out of this chat, um, which is actually the main message of my book, it can be summarized in one word, change. Because businesses have been operating in the same way for way too long, for centuries. And now customers and employees want to see change in the way that businesses do business. They want to see companies that care more about their stakeholders the internal and external stakeholders, but also about society. And um, when we talked about the deficit of trust, lack of trust, it is especially towards governments and politicians. There is also, um, and it's it, it is less. There is less deficit on companies. And customers believe that companies can actually change things. You know, they can contribute to. Um, create a better society. So I believe that if we listen to our customers and we act um, in a better way, we can create a better business world. 
I love that. I love that. Uh, everyone should check out your book, uh, Journey to Centricity. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Because you also do keynote speaking. And if I'm not mistaken, in at least three languages. So you're certainly not limited True. to English. You've got Spanish and Italian. So all kinds of options uh, when it comes to language. How how can people get in touch with you? So I'm quite active on LinkedIn. I create content um, frequently on LinkedIn. And um, if anybody wants to follow me or get in touch with me, I believe LinkedIn is the best way. Uh, Ilenia Vidili or via my website, ileniavidili.com, um, or even Instagram, just um, looking for my name, and um, I pop up. <laughs> <laughs> well, Elenia, thank you so much for joining me for this Thanksgiving episode. I'm glad that we could uh, talk about a special food from from your home, even if... Um, even if I've scarred you and now probably the audience. So thank you so much for being next in queue. Thank you very much, Rob. And thank you everybody for listening. Thank you. Next in queue is brought to you by happy to, and is produced by me, Rob Dwyer. If you enjoy this podcast, please, by all means, subscribe and or rate this podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. But more importantly, Please tell just one person about this podcast. Word of mouth is the best way for people to discover new content. As always, thanks for listening.